Kittens. We are back with another very special stay-at-home self-quarantine episode of the Brando Cast. And again, fair warning today, kids. I'm going to nerd out because <laughs> my guest today, he has no idea what an, an important figure in my life he is. But I'm going to just let him know that before there were tastemakers and influencers, this guy was responsible for so much incredible music that's come out of the American Midwest. He was the manager of Orfolk Joke Opus, the legendary record store in Minneapolis, and also a founder of Twin Tone Records, which of course is the home of so many of my favorite bands, including The Replacements and Soul Asylum. So that means that we're only talking to one man, and that man is Mr. Peter Jesperson. Hello, sir. How do you do? Uh, well, again, I'm doing great because I got you as a guest on the Brando cast today. And I know for everybody listening, we are about to go to rock school. So the first question that I have for you is, now that we know that Trouble Boys, Bob Mayer's definitive book about the replacements, is going to be made into a movie, who is going to play you? Uh you know, that is uh, one of the most surreal uh, 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 experiences of my life, even thinking about that. But um, there have been a couple of names tossed out so far. And uh, uh, I don't know that, you know, I should say they haven't really cast. I think that the piece that uh, popped out on uh, one of the movie blogs where Josh Boone, the gentleman who is uh, going to direct the replacements film, if it happens, he basically um, mentioned a couple of names for, I think, people who are going to play uh, Paul and Tommy, but um, it's not written in stone yet. So, and certainly my role is, you know, uh, much less important there. So, uh, you know, I'm not, I, I don't know yet what, um, uh, you know, who, who it is. I mean, I have an idea who they're thinking right now, but it's just probably not I don't. I don't want to further, you know, the, uh, <laughs> the speculation or the rumors or whatever. But, uh, but yeah, it's a pretty. It's a pretty strange uh, possibility. Uh, yeah, to be a movie. Who knew when you first saw the replacements? Where at Jay's Longhorn Bar in Minneapolis? Uh, yeah, that was the first time I saw him on stage. Yep. Okay, so you know, imagine you in that a fantastic little bar in Minneapolis, seeing a, a bunch of scruffy punks from uh, from the city. Cut to you know someone playing you in a movie about their life. I mean, that is crazy. Well, it, it's it is, um, and uh, but but it, I, I do have to say um, it's funny because there. I, I mean, I can almost remember specifically where I was when I said it and it was at the Longhorn but I remember somebody because I went so crazy over the replacements when I first got that demo that I I'm sure I just seemed like a raving lunatic to so many people and people were like Peter get a grip you know uh, hang on here what are you talking about you know you're you're going completely overboard here and I remember wagging my finger at somebody saying you just watch I said someday people are going to be writing books about these guys of course, you know, it never occurred to me that they might be making a movie as well. But anyway, that's a, that's a, just a funny thing that pops into my head when people go, could you believe they're going to do a movie about this? It's like, well, no, but I couldn't, you know, I, I guess in some weird little part of my brain way back when I thought this band is so great. How could people not want to write a book about them? No. Well, I'll tell you how I feel about that band. Uh, the replacements. And again, apologies for regular listeners of the podcast. They've heard a lot of this stuff before. But I will say to you, Mr. Jesperson, that in the mid to late 80s and definitely running into the early 90s, I dressed like Paul. I wanted people to think that I was a peripheral member of the band. It was too hard to dress like late 80s Tommy. Because that would that would mean going out and finding some incredible thrift store tuxedo jacket and, and a fabulous pair of creepers, which I could never pull off. But for Paul, all you needed was a flannel shirt, a bad flannel shirt, and a pair of thrift store pants. Uh, you know, and, and, and I had a pair of, Do of uh, Doc Martens that I got at the alley in Chicago. So that's how I walked through the world. I wanted you to know that I was a Replacements fan. I wanted you to think that I was also in a band, even though I wasn't. Uh, I was a theater major at Northwestern. Uh, and because I was a fan, 
I knew who you were and because you were such a, a, a pivotal uh, character in the replacement story, but also one of the founding members of Twin Tone Records. And as an indie rock fan in the 80s, uh, and I've said this on the podcast before, the way we listen to music was if you knew that SST or Twin Tone or then later on Matador, whoever put out a band, you know that there was quality control and that band was going to be good. So I always bought records by the label. Uh, well, thank you, uh, because my love of the replacements got me to Soul Asylum. And I'll just say one quick thing, because I have a, we have, I've got so much to talk to you about, because I was a replacements nerd, making pilgrimages or, or making the pilgrimage to Minneapolis was a part of the fandom. Uh, and when you went to Minneapolis, going to Orfolk, the record store that you managed from the mid seventies uh, to the early eighties was critical going to the cc club was critical i still have a, a a flannel shirt that i got at platters and tatters um you know in 1989 uh, i had a dear friend at northwestern uh, a guy by the name of matt sweeney oh, yeah. uh, and when matt signed to twin tone records he's a fabulous guitar player he's played with everybody i'm not saying this to you you know this from iggy pop to billy gibbons from zz top neil diamond but back in the day, he had a band called Skunk. And when Skunk signed Twin Tone, we drove up from Chicago to see them play at 7th Street Entry. And for me, just being in that space as a Replacements fan, as a Soul Asylum fan, as a Husker Du fan, and a fan of Twin Tone, you know, it's a trip that I will never, ever, ever forget in my life. We did it a number of times uh, after that. I think we slept on Jill Fonis's floor. Jill Fonis, yes. Jill yes. We slept on her floor that night when Matt played at the 7th Street. So, you know, you have been a part of, of the soundtrack to my life uh, for quite some time. So it's just an absolute thrill to have you here on the BrandoCast today. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here, Brandon. Okay, excellent. Now, as a fan of yours, I know that you are a fan of the Beatles. Now, the, the, the history of the Beatles is just, it's way too vast. There's a billion documentaries out there. The Beatles have been covered up and down. But what I'm going to do today is I'm going to present what I think is the most amazing five-record run in the history of rock music to Mr. Jesperson. So, without further ado, Help is the fifth studio album by the Beatles and the soundtrack to their film of the same name. It was released on August 6, 1965. Seven of Help's 14 songs appeared in the film, and the second side included Yesterday, the most covered song ever written. The movie, directed by Richard Lester, sees the band struggle to record their new album while trying to protect Ringo from a sinister cult and a pair of mad scientists, all of whom are obsessed with obtaining one of Ringo's rings. Do you remember seeing the film as a kid, or do you? When did you? When did the Beatles come into your life? Well, I certainly remember seeing the film as a kid. In fact, I remember the day that it came out. Uh, two buddies and I went to the Skyway Theater in downtown Minneapolis when the theater opened for the first show, and stayed all day. <laughs> we watched it over and over again until I think that maybe one of our parents came to pick us up sometime around ten that night. So we just watched it repeatedly over and over again. So yeah, I remember it very clearly. I mean, the Beatles came into my life. I, I you know, I was, I guess, I was nine years old when uh, "I Want to Hold Your Hand" hit the radio in the United States, January '64. So you know, that was uh, I, I had had a connection to music that was, I think, a little unusual, a bit abnormal before that. I mean, music really had grabbed me in a number of instances, but it was, I want to hold your hand that really, I, I mean, I, I actually remember being at my best friend, John Siegel's house. He had three older sisters who had come home from school and put three stools around their big old radio on one side of the living room. And they would have their pop after school and, and listen to the top 40 stations. There were two in Minneapolis at the time, KDWB and WDGY. And so they'd basically, toggle back and forth between those two. And John and I, you know, we're nine, we're building a fort out of couch cushions uh, while the TV showed uh, an episode of the Flintstones. I remember this so clearly. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden, 
John grabs me and says, Here, and hearing the radio from the other side of the living room, grabs me and says, This is that song I was telling you about. It was called, it's called I Want to Hold Your Hand. It's by a band called The Beatles. And I remember just having this sort of moment that was like out of a, you know, a Charlton Heston movie or something where like the clouds parted and the sun rays came down and I was suddenly alone. You know, there was no one else around. And it really just struck a chord with me. And, um, I mean, it really was, it was like a switch flipped and I have never recovered. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's just about, it's, it's uh, that's, that's the way it happened. I, I, I think that, you know, somewhere very soon after that, I realized that music was the only thing that made sense to me and I would have to figure out a way to work in it. And so I've known since that moment that that's what I was going to do with my life. Did you see the Beatles perform on the Ed Sullivan show? Oh, of course. Uh, it was the, it was uh, just a couple days before I turned 10. And I remember, you know, we always had the TV on Sunday nights uh, and we were having dinner and there was, uh, oh, what was it? The Wonderful World of Disney was one of the programs that we would watch. But in this particular case, of course, we were tuned into the Ed Sullivan show because it was, you know, it was the, the advance um, enthusiasm and, and press was, uh, you know, it, 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 it was uh, really quite extraordinary that you know that it even you know made it to you know my parents who didn't really like rock and roll music uh or pay attention to it anyway and uh, they didn't necessarily dislike it either but they certainly weren't fans and um and uh i remember them being introduced and coming on and that i was sitting at the table and we had the tv on and i actually just sort of like a zombie you know dropped my fork and like you know, in a trance, you know, went up to the TV and just got, you know, my face right in the TV. I mean, I couldn't <laughs> believe what I was watching. It was the sound that they made without, you know, and then you, of course, you saw pictures too, but I mean, still pictures. It was, you know, the sound they made was so, you know, uplifting and, and, uh, and, and joyous. And then when you saw them as people moving and the way they had those sort of grins on their faces and, you know, Lennon who looked sort of all knowing and, you know, George, who looked a little more, you know, easy to peg and, you know, Paul being, you know, the, you know, just the, the, the way he put his body into the music. And, you know, he was clearly just such a, you know, a, a real, you know, just full of music kind of human being. And then Ringo at the back. I mean, you know, it's funny when you think about it now. Um, I mean, I, I think people who get into the Beatles later can't know some things uh, and, and this isn't like a one-upmanship here, but I mean, they can't know that there was a time where Ringo was every bit as important as John or, you know, I mean, you know, it was like all four of those guys were, it wasn't like you, you had any sense at the beginning that it was, you know, Lennon's band or that John and Paul were the, you know, principals or any of that. It was like these four guys were equal. And it was, and, and in a way, you know, it's really true because if you took one of them out, you know, even if you took, you know, say Ringo, who would probably be the lesser of the four, um, you, you know, it would have been a whole different chemistry and it maybe wouldn't have worked the way that history shows that it did. So, yeah, it was it was, you know, monumental. And, and the whole thing of going to school the next day and that was all anybody talked about. I mean, it was everywhere. Um, it, it really was, um, you know, one of those. Uh, yeah, just a watershed experience. And, and I think that, you know, that was the beginning of something that I treasure. One of the things I treasure most in my life, really, is that I bought every Beatle record in order of its release. And that's <laughs> something that, to me, it informs my being, you know, it informs because I got to, you know, like you're, you're talking about this arc of records that, that, you know, that we're focusing on here, you know, uh, from help to, you know, rubber soul to, you know, Revolver to Sgt. Pepper's to, you know, Magical Mystery Tour and the White Album, etc. You know, I mean, it just, it's, you know, it was, it, it was just mind boggling. And, um, and I, I remember having the sense as a kid at that age, right when they started that first year or so that uh, I made kind of a deal with myself. I thought the only two artists reliable enough to buy full LPs by were the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Everybody wow. else bought singles by Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. That's what it was like for me for the first few months, you know, of, of this, you know, uh, the quote unquote British invasion. I mean, it was, you know, and of course the Stones were a little bit later because they didn't really, you know, hit until 65 in the same way. I mean, you know, you had bands that were much earlier, 
you know, right on the heels of the Beatles, like uh, Herman's Hermits or the Kinks, you know, they were very much 64 bands. And, and of course, the Stones were releasing records in 64, but, you know, they didn't, you know, Satisfaction was June of 65. So that, that was where they really became, you know, a global phenomenon. Well, the thing that I'm struck, the, the Ed Sullivan show is one of those cultural moments that, that absolutely changed lives. I mean, there are so many musicians who say that was the night that I knew what I wanted to do. That I wanted to pick up a guitar and I wanted to start a band and I wanted to be in the Beatles and I just wanted that experience. So it's an incredible, we just don't get to have those things anymore where you have an entire nation all watching the same program. And like you said, then going to school and talking about it at school. Did you flirt with the idea of being a musician yourself right then and there? Well, not right then and there, but I mean, not too long afterwards, um, I, I know that I did, um, I, I took drum lessons for a little bit. Um, I've always had a really good sense of rhythm and, and um, it's helped me immensely over the years in the studio just with, you know, spotting a, a tempo sway or whatever on a track and, hey, let's try that again and see if we can, you know, nail it a little better kind of thing. But um, I, I did toy with it. But the thing, and this may sound like a cop-out, but uh, you know, the way it, it, it seems to me in my head, in all honesty, was that I became such a fan so fast that I just never dreamed I could even approach the level of musicianship or songwriting ability of the people that I loved. I mean, it just, it was so, uh, it was just out of the question. I, I, and, and maybe, and, 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 you know, I think, you know, in my life, it's, it's been proven. I, I don't have, you know, that kind of musical inclination. So, um, you know, my job was in music, but it was to do something else and, you know, whatever it is, you know, being a, you know, uh, an evangelist, you know, uh, well, evangelist. A, a tastemaker and an influencer and a producer and a record label owner and all kinds of fabulous things. Uh. Now I I'm similar in that. Um, I mean, my love of music, uh, I'm the John Cusack character in high fidelity without a record store. Um, my love of music makes me want to dress like, like Paul. Uh, I'm not, I've just come to accept the fact that I'm not a musician. I don't have that switch that some musicians have where they want to stay inside all day long and listen to, I want to hold your hand and learn how to play it. Or they want to stay inside all day and learn how to play paranoid by black Sabbath and start a band. Uh, I've done bands before because I was a theater major. I know how to, uh, sort of do the performance thing. And every year for my birthday, I put together a band uh, I've and, seen I, it. and it's very great. It's a great show. Well, I, 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 I was honored that you were there. Um, but that's, but, but I never had the, the wherewithal to pick up the ball and run with it. But, you know, loving music is just as important as, as playing music. So, so I get that. A Rubber Soul is the sixth studio album by the Beatles. It was released in the UK on December 3rd, 1965 on EMI's Parlophone label. Rubber Soul was met with highly favorable critical response and top sales charts. The recording sessions took place in London over a four-week period beginning in October of 65. For the first time in their career, the Beatles were able to record an album free of concert radio or film commitments. Often referred to as a folk rock album, Rubber Soul incorporates a mix of pop, soul, and funk. Notable tracks from the record include Norwegian Wood, Nowhere Man, In My Life, and Drive My Car. All right, here's where we're really turning to the uh, the master class of rock with Rubber Soul. Uh, you, you referenced it earlier. You started to buy things in order. So when that record came out, what was your reaction to it? You know, I, I mean, I, again, I do have uh, some very specific memories, and this is, this is what, another one. Uh, I remember... You know, I would call the record store every day waiting and, uh, until they got the new record in. And then when they got it, I would force my dad to drive me to the record store and, and so I could buy the record, and whether it was a single or an album. And, um, and I remember him, you know, giving me the five bucks and me running. Uh, it was a Knollwood Shopping Center in uh, <laughs> Minnesota. Uh-huh. And uh, the place I shopped at, I think it was originally called the Record Shop, and then it was taken over by... Or no, it was originally called Record Lane, and then it was taken over by Musicland. Um, but um, I remember walking along the sidewalk up to the store, and before you got to the door, 
there was a huge plate glass window where you could see inside the store. And as I'm walking peripherally out of my right hand, uh, you know, glance, I could tell that there was a whole lot of the same, like a, a whole wall of something just out of my view. And as I turned my head, they had an entire wall, like, I don't know, 60 slots, maybe something like that of all the cover of rubber sole. And you have to stop and think about this. This was, you know, late 65, you know, their hair had gotten longer and that sort of um, fisheye lens effect that that cover had was so weird. You can't <laughs> really imagine, you know, now looking back on it, it looks very tame, but at the time that was just outrageous. Wow. That, that cover was you know, it had been, you know, clearly their faces were stretched. It was like weird. And you were like, wait a minute, what's going on here? I mean, it just, and I got weak in the knees. I remember just seeing these 60 slots filled with rubber sole and then, you know, buying the record and taking it home. And of course, you know, uh, interesting thing about when you listed, you know, you mentioned the songs that were on it, uh, you know, uh, Nowhere Man wasn't on rubber sole in America. You know, in America, the album opened with I've Just Seen a Face, mm -hmm. which was on help in in the UK. In the UK, Rubber Soul opened with Drive My Car. I mean, it's a whole different feel of, you know, stepping into an album. So I've Just Seen a Face is really what sort of defined it as a quote-unquote folk rock record, you know, historically speaking. But at the time, you know, uh, I mean, that term was uh, just sort of coming in, you know, particularly with the birds doing Mr. Tambourine Man and that everything that happened after that. But um, but so, you know, the, the interesting thing was, you know, the Beatle records in America had 11 or 12 songs. In England, they all had 14 and the singles weren't on the albums. So, you know, it was just a whole different configuration. So anyway, yeah, it was it was a huge moment to to get I uh, to, to get Rubber Soul. You, you know, you you just think about, you know, not only the album cover, the pictures of them on the back. I mean, honestly, like as silly as this sounds, I saw the picture of McCartney in the turtleneck smoking a cigarette, and I thought, that is so cool. I better smoke <laughs> cigarettes. And I did. I started smoking cigarettes because of the picture of McCartney on the back of Rubber Soul. Wow. You know, when I was, you know, you know, pro I probably didn't start it right. In, in 65, I would have been going on uh, uh, 14. So, um, you know, it was probably, yeah, I probably did start right around then, actually, now that I think about it. So, bad boy. Uh, amazing. Uh, it's also that album is also interesting to me because we're, we're we're really turning the corner from I love you and you love me and we love each other and love, love, love into more interesting themes and structures that aren't pop oriented necessarily. Uh, I, so, I mean, uh, the, I just love hearing your accounts of that because it was all new. They're inventing the industry as they're going with a cohesive record, with album art, with themes uh, I mean, it's just, it's kind of amazing. I watched last night, just sort of to get ready for this. I watched Ron Howard's um, Eight Days a Week documentary. Oh, great which is film. Great film. Uh, for anyone who hasn't seen it, uh, I think I watched it on Amazon Prime. But anyway, it really, it really uses a lot of uh, concert footage and performance uh, footage of the Beatles from this period of time. And it, it's, it's, just, it's just amazing because they, they were just inventing the game as they were going along. Were you able to get those British releases back in the day, or how long did you have to wait before you could get the British release of Rubber Soul or Revolver or whatnot? I started getting them in 1970. I uh, I was, um, I guess at some point, I don't even remember how I came across it, maybe you know, a classified ad in the back of a magazine or something, but I saw uh, listings for, uh, you know, import records and... You know, there was the whole uh, dialogue of the British pressings being better quality and the covers were cooler because they had that clairfoil, um, shiny, you know, they just had a, a, a something about them was, you know, just, a, a, you know, looked better. And, and you know, really, as I got into the, you know, the record label business and, and started dealing with manufacturing, um, you know, one of the things that uh, was pointed out to me was that they didn't use a stamper as often in the UK as they did in the States because they had a smaller market. So the records, you know, just they, they and, and I think they also replaced the stampers more often for quality control than they did in America, where they had, you know, just a giant pressing plant there where they would 
stamp as many records as they could out of one stamper until it was on its last legs and then make another one in a cost saving sort of way. So anyway, these things were attractive to me. And, and certainly, I mean, but the big attraction was when, you know, and again, I don't remember how it came to my, you know, came uh, to my attention, but I remember finding out that the, the records were, you know, different in America and that, you know, the records had, and England had more songs on them. And so in the States they had to, it was a publishing cap really is why, I don't know if you know this already. I, do, I do not No. Well, they, the, 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 one of the reasons that they didn't put as many songs on the records in America was because they, it would cost them more to put 14 songs on a record because they had oh. to pay, you know, uh, their royalty rates times 14 instead of times 11 or 12. So this was, you know, a cost saving measure for capital in the day and then what that and, and then the fact that the Beatles made not only albums, but they made singles and EPs and the singles and EPs were not on albums. You know, every year, you know, there was a whole bunch of extra songs. Um, and, you know, there was you know, there were people probably with some wisdom uh, at Capitol that that said, you know, we can make these stronger records for the American market if we move these songs around, if we take this one off, if we add this one that was only a British single or whatever. And, you know, to some degree, I think, how dare them mess (laughs) with, you know, the way the Beatles put the records together. But in another way, well, it worked, didn't it? I mean, you know, they, they certainly you know, marketed them well in, in America. And, you know, they became obviously the biggest band in the world. We, like I said, at the top of the show, we're in rock school with Peter Jesperson. Revolver is the seventh studio album by the Beatles. It was released on October 5th, 1966 and marked the group's most overt use of studio technology to date, building on the advances of rubber soul. It's since become regarded as one of the greatest and most innovative albums in the history of popular music. Regarded by some as the start of the group's psychedelic period, the songs on Revolver reflect the band's interest in drugs, Eastern philosophy, and the avant-garde, while also addressing themes such as death and transcendence from material concerns. Notable tracks on the UK release include Eleanor Rigby, Yellow Submarine, Got to Get You Into My Life, and of course, Tomorrow Never Knows. Your head must have been blown when you put that uh, album on the turntable. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, right at the beginning, you know, you hear, for one thing, it was odd and cool, I thought, to open with a George Harrison song. But when you heard that crazy intro of that one, two, three, four, it was just, it really was such an ear-catching thing. And then that cool, you know, chunky rocker that came in. Um, yeah, it, it, it knocked my head off. And I'll, and I'll say, I mean, again, here's another specific memory. Uh, one of my best friends, uh, Bruce Nagley was his name, uh, lived a few doors down from me. Uh, in Minnetonka, where I grew up. And um, I remember going over to his house to see if he could come out to play. And uh, and I, I knocked on the screen door, and his mother came and said, Bruce has gotten in trouble, and he's grounded. He can't come out today. Uh, but she allowed Bruce to come to the screen door to say hello, and then I had to, you know, take off and, and go find somebody else to play with, I guess. Anyway, he's, we're standing there through talking to each other through the screen door and he casually mentions my brother his older brother dave um had just gotten the new beatles album and i was like what (laughs) you know i wasn't aware that it was already in the store or whatever i you know it's it's a whole different world back then right you didn't have you know the internet or social media no you know give you all the advance uh you know warning on this stuff but anyway he said he said yeah he he just got it and i said wow and i remember going what's it called? And he said, revolver. And I remember thinking, you know, a gun. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I ran back to my house and my brother was home and uh, I had actually been in a little bit of trouble with my parents and I maybe had overspent on my allowance or something and I had zero money coming and here was a new Beatle album that I had to have. And I begged my brother and he secretly loaned me the money because my parents were mad and they wouldn't have wanted him to do it. So he actually gave me a ride to the record store and bought Revolver. And then I got home and I had to listen to the new Beatles album. And we only had the big Magnavox in the, in the living room. So I, I'm, I'm not like in my bedroom with the door closed or whatever. I had to be 
in a public space in our house listening to the new Beatle album and not let on that I had a new Beatle album to my mom or dad. And that was really <laughs> difficult because I was just going, like you said, I mean, it was just mind blowing. It was so. And, and the other thing that that really jumped out at me was when you get to the end. I mean, so many great songs. I mean, you know, Eleanor Rigby. I mean, just like unlike anything, I think, to this day that anybody you know, certainly nobody had ever done anything like it at the time. And um, to this day, sounds pretty dang original. But um, but by the time you got to the end of the record, Tomorrow Never Knows, when that song started, it literally frightened me. <laughs> <laughs> because it was so strange. In a weird way, a little bit like the cover of Rubber Soul. It was just, it was like, whoa, you know, these aren't just my beloved mop tops anymore. This is like they're going somewhere else. And I was totally down with it. I was not, it wasn't something that I was worried about or thought that they were going too far i was like i'm all in man this is great but it's scaring me a little bit and i remember having that same sensation about that same time with uh hearing painted black the first time uh -huh. that was a really fucking scary song if i may say that on a podcast of course <laughs> um at the time i mean it was it was uh you know so anyway that that, that was like you know this period where you're 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 listening to these people that you hold in such high regard but they were just they were really challenging you and taking you to places that you you know absolutely did not anticipate and and it was so you know the whole record really just astounding um you know here there and everywhere you know is is would be one of my absolute favorite beatles songs i, I just think a perfect construction a perfect performance the harmonies are just ridiculous and, uh, and, and I guess that that's one thing I would say, too, is, is you know, with the uh, benefit of, of, of time and looking back on all this, um, I guess that maybe it was the reissue uh, maybe last year of the Abbey Road stuff, w listening to some of the demos that they did, uh, or, or maybe it was maybe the last couple, White Album and Abbey Road both, where listening to the demos you know, they were doing these things, they were tossing them off as little sketches to get down on tape to remember to record a proper version later. But when you listen to the demos, the vocals are so incredibly good, all like the Escher demos for the White Album. I mean, that kind of stuff. I mean, you just go. Uh, and, and so anyway, the, the, the thing that, that when I look back on them now, and this is, again, just something I've thought of in the last couple of years with these rec recent box sets, is that, you know, maybe the most astounding thing about the Beatles was what great singers they were. To me, maybe even more than what great songwriters they were or any uh, number of other groundbreaking things that they did. To me, the voices are just, just insanely good. And the fact that those three voices, which were so unique and different, you know, Lennon, McCartney, and Harrison, that they could do those blends. I mean, to me, it's just, it's, that's one of the things that I don't think they get really. I think to this day, people don't really give them credit for being the singers that they were. And I think that we hear constantly on the radio in 2020 or in, in recent years, you know, lots of people that are OK singers. But you hear very few really, really gifted vocalists. And they were certainly gifted vocalists. Anyway, sorry about that. Rant. Uh, no, uh, no, I, I'm, this is, this is all that I want to do. This is all that I was, this is how I want to spend my time, especially during this pandemic. I mean, this, this is mana from heaven for me. I, one of my favorite things about the Beatles, because I'm, I'm 50, I'm in my early fifties. So the Beatles are still everywhere when I'm a little kid. Uh, but one of the things that hooked me in very early on was the fact that the Beatles seem like four characters in their own movie. Yeah, they made some amazing movies, but in general, and it's an important, and I've said this about other bands, all my favorite bands, I can tell you everything about each member. I don't know who anyone in REO Speedwagon is outside of Kevin Cronin, but I know everything about all the Beatles. I know everything about all four replacements, the four original replacements. The Ramones have that. Led Zeppelin have that. The Rolling Stones have that. The Clash have that. U2 has that. And I think it's it's just a very interesting thing where our love of the band, they they sort of transcend their own band and, and just become cultural figures. Yeah. And I think that the successful bands have that formula for some reason. And most of the time, it's rooted in authenticity. I don't think a record company can put together, um, you know, a corporate record company can put together 
you know, like they tried to do in the late 80s and early 90s with heavy metal bands where you could just mix and match people. Um, you know, look, love them or hate them, you know all four members of Motley Crue. Love them or hate them, you know all four members of Black Sabbath. And I think that that, that, adds, to the, uh, that adds to the fun of enjoying a band. Do you know what I mean? I totally agree. Uh, I would say one other thing about Revolver is I think it's absolutely the finest album cover in my experience of all time. Do you know the name of the artist that did uh, that cover? Yeah, Klaus Vormann. <laughs> it's written on the cover as he wrote his name on the cover on the lower right hand corner there between george harrison's hair follicles you you, you really need a to picture of him he put a picture of himself there too uh, did you did you spend time just staring i still do i have a huge blow up of it on my wall in my music room i stare at it every day you know for you know i'm sure i get lost in it once a day <laughs> ah one of the best-selling albums of all time, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band was released on May 26, 1967. It spent 27 weeks at number one in the UK and 15 weeks at number one in the US. The album was lauded by critics for its innovations in songwriting, production, graphic design, for bridging a cultural divide between popular music and high art. Its release was a defining moment in 60s pop culture and the album's reception achieved cultural legitimization for rock and pop music as a genuine art form. Sgt. Pepper's was also the first rock album to receive the Grammy for Album of the Year. The album was loosely conceptualized as a performance by the fictional Sgt. Pepper band, an idea that was conceived after the band recorded the title track. Other notable tracks on this masterpiece include Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, With a Little Help from My Friends, and A Day in the Life. Okay, like the Ed Sullivan show, where people say, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and I knew that I wanted to be a musician. The the dropping of Sgt. Pepper, as you hear time and time again, of people having the experience of taking that record, going home, listening to it, and understanding that the world had changed. So tell me about your own experience. Uh, when that album came out, I had gone on a shopping excursion with my mom and dad. We had gone to Target, which was a chain that was actually started in Minnesota. So it would have been one of the very first Target stores, probably before there was a Target store in any other state. Um, anyway, for whatever that's worth. Um, and so we went to Target and they went off on their merry way. And of course, I went straight to the record department. And I walked into the record department, and again, similar to Rubber Soul, there's a whole wall of Sgt. Peppers. And I just lost my shit and r had to run all over this giant target to find my parents for them to give me the money to buy the record, and which they did. They knew there was no arguing, you know, when a new Beatle record came out. It was like, sure, Peter, here's the cash. We'll worry about how you pay me back later. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, so I got the record and I bought it and I said, I'll be waiting in the car. And I had to sit in the car and wait for them while they shopped. And I don't think they dragged their feet on purpose, but it felt like it to me, like they were, they were punishing me by taking their time in the store when they knew that they should have just rushed right out and got me home to my turntable so I could hear it as quickly as possible. But anyway, I remember sitting in the car, uh, a hot summer day uh you know tearing the shrink wrap off and you know looking at that spectacular cover and also one of the things that really stood out at the time was i don't think uh that i had seen a record that had the lyrics printed on it ever it, it, before i think that was the first time that um and there may have been some there probably was one before but nothing that had gone through my uh you know my world um so that was a big deal and of course the insert and, you know, the gatefold with the cool picture of the Beatles looking really stoned. Yeah, it was a, a, just an incredible experience. I mean, and again, another one of those things where you couldn't you couldn't turn your head a quarter of an inch without seeing it on the news, on the newspaper in Life magazine or Time magazine or, you know, when you went to school. I mean, I guess that was school was out then, but because um, it was summertime. But I mean, you just couldn't go. I mean, everybody talked about that record. It was you know, literally you could walk, I think this has been said before, but you could walk down the street and hear it coming out of, you know, houses on your left and right as you, as you went and you could almost, you know, yeah. Anyway, it was a, uh, it was a, 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 sh a shock, a really shocking experience how, and, and that record didn't, I mean, I think a day in the life might've had some 
kind of spooky quality to it uh, that might have scared me a little bit, but not not on the level of Tomorrow Never Knows. There was, what can you say? Sgt. Pepper's, I mean, you know, I, I'd say Revolver is probably my favorite record of all time, but Sgt. Pepper's is certainly not far behind. Now, is this, a, are, are you starting to become a collector around that period of time? You know, you're, you're in your early teens, probably your mid-teens. Are I was you... 13 when Sgt. Okay. Pepper's came out, so... Let's see, I think I've got my, my years wrong. I was talking about smoking cigarettes on Rubber Soul. Rubber Soul was 65, so I would have been 11. I didn't start smoking cigarettes then. Anyway, <laughs> correction. I stand corrected. Uh, anyway, I'm 13 when Sgt. Pepper's comes out. Uh, uh, yeah, and by that time, I was, like I said, I was buying, I, I would only buy Beatles and Stones albums, and then I would buy singles, although I think at the time, I probably, I'm sure I had the Birds' greatest hits, the Kinks' greatest hits, Everybody had those records. Those were yeah. standard. Uh, you, you, you had to have them if you were a teenager at the time. I think it was required. But um, Yardbirds' greatest hits. That's another one. You know, the Yardbirds, let us not forget. I mean, boy, those those records, uh, again, they were, I think, a little bit ahead of the Stones in terms of having hits. So uh, in America anyway. I, I, but I, I've never really considered myself a record collector because uh, I think I was scarred many years ago by uh, actually talking to a guy who was a Beatle collector who had, this is like a very obscure interview record, but there was a guy by the name of Ed Rudy, who was one of the many people who called himself the fifth Beatle. But he was one of those New York City jocks that, you know, interviewed them and hung out with them when they were in the city. And, um, and so he fancied himself a, uh, uh, you know, the fifth Beatle or whatever. And he did an interview with them that was actually pressed on a record and it was a promotional only thing, but it ended up being, bootlegged i guess and and um and it was one of those like uh holy grail things that that you know i didn't know how to find something like that when i was you know that age but um <coughs> a little bit later i remember being at the record store at orfolk and a guy telling me that he had the ed rudy interview album and i said what's the interview like how oh, god i can't want to hear it and he said well i don't know i haven't listened to it because it's worth more sealed <laughs> And that was like, I was like, so I just thought that was so just beyond uh, ridiculous that I, I just the word collector has had a stain on it ever since that moment, I think. So I don't like to call myself a collector, but I did start uh, acquiring other records at the time. And it would have been pretty much exclusively British bands, except I bought Bob Dylan singles and I bought uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders. I mean, they yeah. were another band that people forget about. I mean, man, they were like the American Rolling Stones. I love that band. And they had, you know, eight or, or, or so singles in a row that were, you know, eight of the best 45s I've, I have in my collection to this day. I mean, brilliant stuff. So, you know, and, and then there were things like, uh, you know, certainly the left bank was another big one. Uh, the crying shames, uh, you know, it took me a while. I was a little late on the Beach Boys. I bought Beach Boys singles, but I didn't start buying the albums until later. So, yeah, it was. But I definitely started acquiring, um, you know, more copies. And and one funny thing I remember, because a bunch of my friends were doing the same thing. I remember going over to a friend's house and he had his records, you know, a lot of the same things I had. Yardbirds, Kinks, Beatles, Stones, Who, Small Faces, whatever. And I looked and he had the Beatles filed in you know, because by this time we were all getting enough records that we had to alphabetize them. <laughs> right. And so, and so he had his records file. He had the Beatles in the B's. And I remember going, what? Because at my house, I had the Beatle records were here and then the alphabet started. <laughs> and to this day, Brendan, that's the way my records are filed. I have Beatle records are first and then A through Z. You know, I have always said you I have always said you have to remove the Beatles from all discussions of like yeah. who's best, who's better is like they're their own separate category. They are. I, they, I, I, I don't want to bring ring when I watched the uh, the Ron Howard movie yesterday, I was so struck at Ringo's performance style. I mean, of oh. course I've seen it for a billion years, but it, it just dawned on me last night that he just brought so much style to it. So, it, but it's pointless to go who's better, Ringo or Keith Moon, Ringo or Neil Peart. You know, it's it's pointless to talk about the Beatles in the context of other bands because they were so colossally important. Yeah. Let me ask this question of you: When does your love of music? How does your love of music get you to Orfolk? And I'm probably skipping, you know, your early concert experiences or music going experiences. But you know, I want to hear about what 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 brought you to Orfolk, Joe Copas. Well, I, Orfolk, before it was called Orfolk, it was called North Country Music. And, you know, I think um, 
you know, I, again, I, if you go, I bought all my early records at this, you know, sort of a music land type store. And it wasn't until 1968 in Minneapolis where uh, there was an independent record store. And, and that and that was called the Electric Fetus, which actually still exists. Um, a great record store. And uh, so when I started shopping at the Electric Fetus, that was just a whole new world. And it was, you know, in this area called the West Bank of, of Minneapolis. It was right across the river from the University of Minnesota and, and just a super hipster neighborhood. And you could buy pot down there and stuff, you know. I mean, it was just great. <laughs> and um, the independent record store became a big deal to me. And more and more started popping up, of course. And then around 1970, there was a place called the Wax Museum that came into town that became a chain later that was quite successful for a number of years. And they had used records. And that was really a big deal at the time. So, you know, a lot of us gravitated there. And um, it was also you know, uh, we didn't know what was happening at the time, but we could find new releases before they were out because people from record labels would sell advanced promos, um, you know, and sometimes boxes of them. So you could walk into the Wax Museum and there'd be 25 copies of, you know, the new, uh, you know, Who album or whatever. I mean, it was crazy. So anyway, so, you know, you had this kind of buildup of the independent stores and I was always looking for the next one that opened up because, you know, you got a, a great new record store. It would have the enthusiasm and the freshness of being new. So I, and I needed to shop at them all because, you know, and I had a route where I went to, you know, six or eight record stores every week or two. And then um, I got involved in distributing a British music paper through a publishing company my dad worked for. Um, and it, without going into the long story about it, it was the New Musical Express. And, and um, the, the Melody Maker was the only British paper that had been imported up till this time. And this is 1972. Um, and uh, they had a chance to compete with Melody Maker and bring New Musical Express in. So somehow I got elected to distribute it in Minneapolis-St. Paul, which was really fun. And wow. even though the paper didn't do well and it was a short-lived failed experiment, um, I made pretty good money from you know uh, April or May of 72 through September of 72 when they stopped uh, you know, the process, uh, or when they just decided it was, it was not a successful uh, uh, endeavor. Um, but anyway, so that got me into all the record stores in a different way where I was putting these newspapers in on consignment, dealing with the manager in a little more of a formal way. I mean, I was a pretty familiar face to a lot of these record stores um, because I was a regular. But this was one that kind of got me in with the people and a little bit more of a one on one level. And so I was at that point, North Country Music was to me the best record store in town. And um, I had gotten turned on to that because they were the first store in town that had Broken Barricades by Procol Harum, which was m one of my favorite <laughs> bands at the time. So, you know, you know, they were they endeared themselves to me for eternity with that right there. Um, so I, I followed them from one to three locations. Actually, they moved around a little bit and they'd had a break in and, and they were robbed and they went out of business for a little bit and then they reopened somewhere else. Anyway, they eventually opened on the corner of 26th and Lindale. Um, in September of 72, September of, no, September of 70, 71, 70, anyway, whatever they, <laughs> um, and they, so they were there from September until, uh, January of 72 when they sold it to this guy named Vern Sandin and he changed the name to Orfolk Joe Gopas. By that time, I was, I, I mean, all the clerks and I were good pals and the owner and I were good pals from North Country. So when Vern came in, you know, he knew who I was and I'd see him a lot, but he was a little bit older than the rest of us. And he was kind of gruff and sort of, uh, you know, seemed a little unfriendly. So I didn't really talk to him. And I actually had the impression that he didn't like me. And I was <laughs> a very excitable, you know, kid about records, especially. So I just thought he thought I was some, you know, stupid little kid that, you know, he shouldn't pay attention to and he wasn't friendly with. And so whatever, I didn't care. I was just, you know, shopping. And one day I'm flipping through the used bin and uh, all of a sudden I see Vern walking up to me out of the corner of my eye. And I really thought he was going to throw me out of his store. Get out of here, you little, you know, <laughs> twit, you know, or whatever. And instead he walked up to me and he just looked at me and he said, you want a job? Wow. And I was like, uh, in a record store, are you kidding? You know, I, mean, I was like, yes. Um, so, uh, so that was really it. So I, I, um, that was April of 73 and um, 
I, the day I started, I think actually I figured it out just doing a little research in the last few years. Um, I believe it was April 30th because um, the day, my first day at Orfolk, I had to stop at the record distributor on my way in, uh, Heilacher Brothers, which was the big company that owned Musicland chain and Target and all that, or not Target, but Musicland anyway. And um, I had to stop at their warehouse and pick up the new Paul McCartney album, Red oh, Rose wow. Speedway. Oh, wow. Okay, wow. So this was like, and for me, you know, like, um, you know, I'm 18 years old you know, I'm going into a record warehouse and walking out with a box of the new Paul McCartney record. I thought this was the greatest day of my whole life. <laughs> so, so that was, uh, so I started then, uh, I think it was April 30th, uh, uh, 1973. And I was there for until uh, June of 73. Amazing. June of 83, rather. June of 83. Yeah. Amazing. I'll get, I'm going to just give you a quick tangent story about my uh, record clerking days. Before I, I read uh, uh, some more about the White Album, when I first moved to Los Angeles in the fall of 1990, I got a job, at, uh, just out of college, I got a job at Tower Records in Westwood. Um, yes, it was it was super fun. It was still corporate. I always wanted to work in an indie store, but I was always intimidated by indie store clerks because even though I'm a huge music nerd, record store clerks at indie record stores are always the hyper nerdiest. They're the ones that know about bands before they get going. But uh, one of my favorite experiences at Tower Records was telling John Waite that he needed to buy Soul Asylum and the horse they rode in on. Because it was... Good for you. Thank you. It was out right then. The Beatles, a.k.a. The White Album, is the group's ninth studio album and their only double LP. It was released on November 22nd, 1968 in a white sleeve with no graphics or text other than the band's name embossed on the front cover. The White Album is recognized for its diverse range of genres, including folk, British blues, ska, music hall, and the avant-garde. Most of the songs on the album were written during March and April of 1968 at a Transcendental Meditation course in India. The Beatles returned to EMI Studios in London at the end of May 68 and commenced recording sessions that lasted until mid-October. Arguments broke out among the band during those sessions over creative differences in the band and also John Lennon's new partner, Yoko Ono, whose constant presence subverted the Beatles' policy regarding wives and girlfriends in the studio. After a series of conflicts, including producer George Martin taking a sudden leave of absence, Rigo Starr left the band for a short time in August of 68. These same tensions continued throughout the following year and eventually led to the band's breakup. The White Album. I, the White Album is so ridiculous uh, to me. Let me just say one thing about the cover of the White Album, because as I was reading that, one of my favorite records is The Replacement Stink, which has an incredibly unique cover, and I think you could probably tell everyone listening today how that cover came about. Uh, well, yeah, we had, um, we had gone to Chicago in... Uh... January of 1982 uh, with Husker Du. Um, Husker Du were a little bit ahead of um, the replacements in terms of how long they've been around and just establishing themselves. And they became uh, really um, quite helpful to us, uh, opening some doors for us in, in, um, in, in many situations. And, um, you know, the replacements' first album, Sorry Ma, uh, had come out in September of 81. So this is January of 82. You know, long you know, long time before they were really due to make a new record, and uh, we went to Chicago in the winter. Terrible, cold drive down there. I had to borrow a van uh, from the suburbs. Actually, uh, another group on Twin Tone. So we drove down. I remember actually pulling into Chicago, and I believe that I saw flashing time and temperature that said something like minus forty six, <laughs> and uh, it was just colder than you know. Uh, you could imagine. And I mean, Minneapolis was cold, but Chicago with that wind off the lake, I mean, you just, you, you rarely felt colder than anywhere else. But, um, but anyway, I remember pulling in, we played a place called O'Banion's and it was a real kind of um, dive of a bar, but cool, you know, all black interior, like millions of punk rock bars you've been to. Um, and we pulled in and found out that the heat was not working. You know, and uh, so it was everybody left their coats on for the longest time. They showed us where the dressing room was. You had to go through a trap door behind the uh, drum kit to go down to the dressing room. And there was a furnace uh, 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 that 
actually uh, took care of the upstairs apartments that was working. And so we would huddle down there by the furnace just to keep warm. But anyway, the replacements play their set opening for Husker Du. And midway through the set, I was taping it with a boombox at the soundboard. And midway through the set, they went into a song that I didn't know that they'd worked up at practice. And I was, you know, usually Paul would call me and tell me when he had written something new or whatever. I mean, I was usually on top of it. But in this case, I was surprised. And it was like, it hit me like a ton of bricks. It was a song called Kids Don't Follow. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, you know, this is, this is it. He's written the song. And this is an anthem, if I've ever heard an anthem. And I was just beside myself. And then the next day, um, we probably slept on somebody's floor. I don't even remember. Uh, we certainly didn't have money for a hotel room. Um, and I remember the next day driving through snowy Wisconsin and everybody's, you know, you know, groggy and cold. And, you know, it's a seven hour drive from Chicago to Minneapolis. And we're tooling along. And all of a sudden I pulled out the cassette that I'd recorded the night before and put it in. And we were listening and everybody was kind of like, hey, we were pretty good last night or whatever it was. It's good. It was a good, good show. And all of a sudden, Kids Don't Follow came on. And for the second time, I was just like, my head was exploding. And I just said, we've got to get this out right away. We have to record this. You know, I'm going to figure out a way to record this. And so when I got home, I called a meeting with my two twin tone partners. And I said, Paul's written this song. It's called Kids Don't Follow. I'm telling you, this is something that can really put them on the map, can really help twin tone, help all our other bands. I said, I think that we need to do this. And of course, playing devil's advocate, my partner, Paul Stark, especially, you know, he he trusted me, but he also would try to balance things because I was, you know, would go off the rails frequently. And so he would try to rope me in when I needed, he felt I needed to be roped in. And uh, he was trying to talk me out of it. And I said, no, Paul, we've got to do this. And I said, listen, I know we're not really due to make another record yet. And the, you have to imagine the replacements, they weren't like a big deal in Minneapolis yet. And there were a lot of people that were very resentful that these kids got to make a record when a bunch of bands that have been standing in line at Twin Tone expecting they were going to be the next signing, you know, they were pissed off. There were a lot of, a lot of resentment. So it wasn't like it was, everybody was like, yeah, rah, rah, replacements, let's make another record. It was like, well, wait a minute, I don't know about this. And so I remember saying to Paul Stark, listen, I said, I know we don't have, you know, it's, we're not really due to make another record right now and money's tight and all that stuff. But I said, I'll fucking hand stamp jackets if I have to. <laughs> and, uh, and so that was exactly how that started. I mean, that just was something that, you know, I just said, give me some white sleeves. We'll make the covers. You won't have to spend any money on printing artwork, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so he, damn, if he didn't take me up on it, he bought a bunch of dummy sleeves and I had rubber stamps made. Bruce Allen from the suburbs was the art director for Twin Tone and a lot of our other records, a lot of other groups records. And uh, so I had him make the rubber stamps. We made three. We made one for the front that said, you know, the replacement stink, kids don't follow plus seven, one for the back that had all the song titles and the writing credits, and then a third stamp for the Twin Tone logo in the lower corner. And we did that for, uh, I don't know, uh, four or five pressings. I mean, a few thousand copies. And we'd have stamping parties where, wow. you know, we would, you know, be me and the band or me and, you know, Paul and Charlie, my Twin Tone partners, or me and my girlfriend, or, you know, we would just, you know, and then you'd sell out the first, I don't know how many we pressed, probably 2,000 at first, sold those, had to make another 1,000, you know, so it was an ongoing process. And, uh, and I still have those stamps. And in fact, uh, Kevin Cole, I don't know if you know of the great Kevin Cole, a DJ at uh, KEXP in, in, uh, in uh, Seattle, but he's an old buddy of mine from Minnesota. We used to do a lot of uh, radio together. Um, he just remodeled his bathroom and was joking that he wanted to put you know, like the replacement stink in his bathroom as a like a off color joke or whatever. And um, and I said, well, I have the rubber stamps. And he was like, you wouldn't loan those to me, would you? And I was like, Kevin, I trust you implicitly. Of course, I boxed them up and sent them to him. And he rubber stamped his entire bathroom with the replacement stink. So I think that's hilarious. If you you can probably find it on his uh, his uh, Facebook page or whatever for KEXP. It's it, he posted many uh, pictures of it up there. Anyway. Now, I, now I know what I want to do with my bedroom. Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> I, 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 my mind is blown. I, I did not know that story. Uh, I would like to see Owen Wilson play you in Trouble Boys and, uh, you know, sitting there stamping a bunch of uh, white sleeves. That's incredible. Because uh, I remember as a, as a young dude trying to find one of those copies of Stink 
was a really big deal in Chicago. Yeah. You know, wh- you know, vintage vinyl in Evanston. There was so many record stores that that you know, the, but they would last for a second. You know, they would be gone immediately. Here's a one last question about Kids Don't Follow. Uh, for people who don't know, uh, the song Kids Don't Follow starts with a recording of Minneapolis police uh, busting up a party. And so you hear uh, police coming into, Peter, I'm sure, will we'll tell us exactly where that was. But you hear, this is the Minneapolis police. The party's over with. You all just grab your stuff and leave. Nobody goes to jail. And you hear a voice, a male voice in the background scream, fuck you, man. The fan lore has always been that that is a very young Dave Perner from Soul Asylum at that party. Is that true? I believe it is. Um, I don't know for sure, but uh, and I don't remember it from the time. Uh, uh, and I knew I knew Dave then, um, but uh, or I already knew Dave then. But um, I, I, I think that that is uh, accurate. Yes. Ridiculous. Um, look, Peter, I've kept you for over 70 minutes. We've crossed the 60 minute threshold. You have given me the gift of your experience and your wisdom, incredible Beatles stories, incredible memories. Again, this is how I want to spend my time during this mad period in history where the the boy king is running the country into the ground and a pandemic is raging. But just to take this time, a time out of life, and to listen to these stories, I I am full. My heart is full uh, right now. So I am just incredibly grateful to you. And I also want to say thank you, thank you, thank you for having the vision and the, the passion to start what became one of my favorite record labels. Well, thank you, Brendan. I mean, I, I, this has been a great conversation and to talk with somebody as knowledgeable about music as you are is a great gift to me too. I, this is, I love these kinds of conversations. And uh, so this means a lot to me and I, and I, I'm very flattered that you would ask and I'm thrilled to be part of, uh, you know, your, your podcast. Well, I cannot wait for people to hear it. Uh, so <laughs> that's all I got to say about that. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for listening, subscribing, liking, sharing the show with friends. We have so many great episodes coming down the pike, but uh, this one was incredibly special. The BrandoCast is produced by Richard Cheltinga. So until the next time, cats and kittens. One of my other favorite nights ever was seeing Soul Asylum at the Student Union in Madison before Hangtime came out. In Madison? Uh, or in Evanston? Madison. In Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, cool. And it was just one of those nights where, like, they were ridiculous. And Matt Sweeney is the one who said, no, you have to listen to Soul Asylum. He would say, there's this band in New York called Sonic Youth. you got to get into them. You have to get into the Meat Puppets, and you have to get into Soul Asylum. So he took us, we went to see them at the Student Union. And that was like, I mean, kids were just hanging from the rafters. And, you know, beer at the Rathskeller was like 25 cents. And it was... I mean, just again, one of those pilgrimages that were so important to me. So I had, thank you. I had one of those experiences with Soul Asylum in Madison too. That was really why we signed them to Twin Tone was the show because they we, the replacements used to play a place called Merlin's all the time, right on State Street. There, that was a, a, a you know, I, I think that um, you know our, our dialogue about about the Beatles here just to tie a little uh, uh, tie it to the replacements a little bit. I always thought that you know our version of Hamburg for the replacements was, was Madison. I mean, that's really where they cut their teeth, you know, where they got to do stuff that they, you know, you know, they, they, everybody in Minneapolis had watched them grow up, you know, whereas in Madison, you know, they could, they really, that's where they, I think, uh, turned into a real rock and roll band and the soul asylum were opening for actually loud, fast rules were opening for them at Merlin's one night. And I remember Tommy Stinson and I had uh, gone back early to see, you know, our friends, Log Fast Rules, do the opening slot. And uh, they were playing in front. There might have been 10 people in the room and they were playing like they were in a stadium full of screaming fans. I mean, it was like they, it really was. It was like I felt like the guy in the Max L ad sitting in the chair with his hair blowing back. I was like, what the fuck? You know, they were so amazing. And I remember Tommy and I both walking into the dressing room afterwards and just going, man, you know, we got to talk about making some records. <laughs> And they were like, really? Oh, my God. Twin Tone? Are you kidding? So that was fun. I had that Loud Fast Rules cassette on Twin Tone Records. That was uh, I, I'm just so many incredible memories. I, uh, yeah. well, you know, treatment bound Duluth to Madison. Uh, I That's knew. Right. First place I ever had a gyro was Madison. We, that was, 
we, we discovered euros in Madison. That was a big deal for us. That's so funny. Um, All right, man. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so thank much. You. It was a great pleasure, Brendan. And um, let's talk again. We, we definitely will. All right. You're the best. Thank Take you so care. much. Bye-bye.